Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back to our program. Michelangelo Signorelli is on the line with us. He's a journalist, commentator, and the host on SiriusXM of the Michelangelo Signorelli Show on SiriusXM Progress, the same channel where you can hear me, 127. His show follows mine. It's 3 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. His website, msignorelli, S-I-G-N-O-R-I-L-E.com, and uh, that's also his Twitter handle. Michelangelo, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Great to uh, be on. I am so glad to have you with us. By the way, I'm doing this remote, so there's just a very slight delay if I step on you. My apologies in advance. So, first of all, tell, tell our listeners, for people who may not have subscribed to SiriusXM, about you and about your program. Well, I'm on every afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We go all over the country on Sirius XM, and uh, I've been doing this show on Sirius XM since about 2003 when I was on the first uh, LGBT channel here on Sirius XM. Uh, moved over to Progress, the larger progressive channel, a few years ago. When we first started, we had like 30,000 subscribers. Now we have like 36 million. So I've been here as Sirius XM has grown. I'm a longtime author and journalist. Uh, as you said, I was an editor-at-large at The Advocate, an editor-at-large at Out Magazine, covering gay politics, LGBT uh, rights, and covering the movement, and have written about, I guess it's five books, and have been very much myself uh, involved in a lot of the movement for LGBT rights as an activist over the years. And privileged to have a platform to talk about that. And now, of course, everything else that we talk about on Sirius XM Progress, which is the progressive political talk channel on Sirius XM. And we've been immersed in uh, Trump world and uh, the disaster and impeachment of late and everything else. Yeah. And you do a spectacular job of it. Uh, when I get off the air, Louise and I, uh, a couple of days a week, we'll go out to lunch or we'll go visit our kids. And uh, we have a serious receiver in our car and listen to your show as we're driving around. And you really hit the sweet spot very frequently. And it sounds like we started the same year. I didn't realize you started in 2003. That's when we started this program. I think of you as one of the more astute political observers of the American political scene. And your point of view is also informed by being a, a member of a minority group, a relatively rigorously persecuted minority group, particularly in the past. Um, I'm curious your take on the current political landscape in America. Where do you think this is all going? What probability would you assign to Trump getting reelected, and if he is reelected, to his doing as Orban has done in Hungary? or Duterte has done in the Philippines, or Modi is in the process of doing in India, basically flipping the country from democracy to oligarchy to strongman form of government. Well, let me just start with that. Well, let me first say, I really am enormously uh, complimented and certainly humbled by your comments about me because I have followed your show and your breadth of knowledge has helped to inform me. And it's great coming on right after you on the channel as well and certainly listen to you and have read your work. So thank you for that. I think right now the energy and the excitement is on the side of progressives and certainly progressives 
really generating the enthusiasm in the base of the Democratic Party. So I think the probability is more that a Democrat is going to win the election, but there is the possibility with Trump. I'm not in any way ruling that out. If I had to give a number of a probability, maybe he has a 30 or 40 percent chance. But isn't that what they said in 2016? Maybe it was even lower than that, a lot lower by some uh, estimates. So I don't think we can in any way assume anything. We have the Electoral College, which you've certainly focused on a lot. We have so many things, voter suppression, uh, so many things that work against Democrats and progressives that the Republican Party has has rigged over the years. So we have to overperform. And that is what we did in 2018. We had to overperform. We actually overperformed enough to beat the gerrymander. They thought they had they thought they had it all rigged where they were going to win no matter what. That's why they rewrote the rules in 2015 that Nancy Pelosi then used for the impeachment. They never thought they would actually be out of power, I think. But we had to overperform. And I think that's what we're going to have to do in 2020 because, to your second point, it's absolutely clear to me that that is what Trump will do in terms of looking at Viktor Orban looking at other authoritarian figures. He looks up to these people. He likes the idea that they do not have to answer to anyone. He uh, hates that he has to answer to a Congress. He hates that he has to answer to a judiciary unless he installs the judges, right? So I, I think it's it's certain he will do that. And we have a Republican Party that is enabling him to do that. And that's what's very dangerous. Yeah, in a way that I would say is both morally and in many cases even legally criminal. It's breathtaking. I watched the debates, in fact, with a friend of mine. He's the guy who runs the Independent Media Institute, who uh, syndicates a lot of my writing. And I was really, really pleased, generally speaking. I thought uh, even the candidates who turned in what I thought were very weak performances in the past, including Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar, came out with a very strong performance. So I'm curious your thoughts on what happened. I agree with you. I think having more candidates is better. I think they make each other better. I think even, as you said, Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar, whose ideas I may not agree with, they were sharper. I think all of these candidates are influencing one another. And I think it's spirited. And I think we're going to produce a candidate who can really rally people. Yeah, I do, too. And and the thing about Biden, you know, before I had thought maybe he's just getting a little old He would because he would lose words. But what I figured out, because I didn't know that he was a stutterer, he's still fighting with that, you know? And a word goes into space or something, it's not, it's not that he's getting old, it's that he's, he's fighting stuttering. What do you think? Yes, and you know he has talked about that in the past. It was something he had to grapple with when he was a kid, and obviously in certain moments, maybe when he's nervous, maybe when he's excited, it comes out. And I don't know if you saw that uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders mocked him on Twitter, which was just abhorrent. It really, it really did tell us a lot about Joe Biden, I think, and how he has struggled. And about Sarah Sanders. Yeah. Michelangelo Cinderella, if you haven't heard his program over on SiriusXM, check it out. It's on SiriusXM Progress Channel 127, right after my show for three hours. Uh, great stuff. M. Signorelli, S-I-G-N-O-R-I-L-E.com is his website. Michelangelo, thank you for dropping by. Thanks so much, Tom. Great to be on. So one of my all-time favorite all-American comedy groups is the Firesign Theater. They are just absolutely spectacular. And uh, Phil Proctor was one of the founders of that. You can find Phil's work all over the place. And he and Sam Joseph, Samuel Joseph, are the authors of a new book with a foreword by Tom Hartman <laughs> titled, what, do you, what to Say to Your Crazy Right-Wing Uncle, Talking Points for Liberals. Uh, Phil is a writer and an Emmy and Academy Award-winning uh, voice actor, lifelong member of the Firesign Theater. And uh, guys, welcome, welcome to the program. Thank hey, you very Tom. much. Happy, happy uh, yeah, uh, whatever. great to have you both on. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Was, <laughs> happy Festivus. Happy Pastafarian <laughs> holiday. Uh, All right. I have to tell your listeners that you wrote a very moving forward for us. 
moving forward, guys. And this, one, but, uh, this, this book is this book is a great grift uh, idea for Christmas. You know, the last time that Sam and I talked to you was about a play that we have touring the country called God Help Us, starring Ed Asner. And we constantly have to revise that because of what the orange one does, right? Well, we can't revise our book. What to say to your crazy right with uncle. So we, we worked really hard, especially Sam, to find talking points that are pretty evergreen, you know, and that you'll be able to use into the new year in the 2020, where we hope we have a better vision of the world. So, uh, by the way, I'm on a remote here in New York, and you guys are in Los Angeles, and there's about a second, maybe a second and a half delay here. So, uh, you know, we will talk over each other from time to time, and it's just there's nothing we can do about it. My apologies in advance. Planetproctor.com, by the way, for Phil. And Firesign Phil is his Twitter handle, and Sam is Samuel W. Joseph. So is this book a book that uh, it's going to teach you how to talk back to your crazy right-wing uncle but but is it going to talk teach you to talk back in a way that you might want to do over you know a christmas or hanukkah or you know pastafarian dinner or is this more for uh, on facebook i think it's it's both it's, we do it in a very respectful manner so it comes in the form of a dialogue it's almost socratic so the crazy uncle says something and the nephew responds and gives a, a reasonable decent answer to the stuff we hear over and over again that people are brainwashed into believing or thinking. One of the things that's always driven me crazy is that people say, well, both sides are corrupt, something like that, right? And in our book, we said, the, the uncle says, that's ridiculous. They're both equally corrupt. And, and we go, well, do the math. From 1961 to 2016, over 56 years, Democrats have held the presidency for 28, Republicans for 28. Over that time, Democrats have seven indicted, three convicted, and one person went to prison. Now, if you look at the Republicans, 126 indicted, 113 convicted, 39 went to prison. Or put it this way, Republicans are 18 times more wow. corrupt than Democrats. So we have things like that where we just say, no, it's not true. They're not both equally corrupt. Now, whether that gets through to some people, or a lot of people, it won't. But some people, it will. Yeah, the, the, the book is what to say to your crazy right-wing uncle. Excuse me. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> the fact is that we, in the give and take in the dialogue between the uncle and the nephew, there are concessions made on the liberal side as well regarding certain um, aspects of American culture that they would agree on, you know, to make the world a better place. For instance, we don't so think it's, it's a good idea to ban people from speaking at colleges. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, issues like that. So, uh, But it does stimulate one's mind, whether whatever side of the uh, debate that you're on, it will give you food for thought, and it may even stimulate more conservative people to rethink some of their arguments. They may not change their minds, but they may, they may have to rethink their arguments. And that might have some influence on making the world a better place and bringing us together. We're talking to Phil Proctor and Samuel W. Joseph. They wrote a book that I wrote the foreword for, or for which I wrote the foreword. Uh, <laughs> what to say to your crazy right-wing uncle, talking points for liberals. And did you guys uh, watch funny. the debates? I like to catch up on these things afterwards because my life is unfortunately and fortunately extremely busy. Uh, and, and we were, we were having yeah. a holiday dinner with my daughter and her grandkids. Oh, but I'm funny. catching up with everything right now. And uh, it's another exciting mm-hmm. day in the neighborhood. Well, anyway. I thought they were both good and I'm still concerned. There you go. Okay, Phil Proctor and Samuel W. Joseph. The book is What to Say to Your Crazy Right-Wing Uncle. Talking points for liberals available wherever fine books are offered. Uh, Planetproctor.com. Thanks, guys. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It by Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff. And this is from the foreword by Ralph Nader. Ever since the few began to control the many, disinformation, fabrications, and distractions have been used to shape consent, impose submission, and maintain domination. Whether by the invoked authority of God, the divine right of kings, 
the dictatorial embodiment of a fatherland, the dictatorship of the proletariat, or the tyranny of commercially managed marketplaces, the casualty of such control has always been the ability of ordinary people to give voice to their own realities, needs, demands, and grievances. Given the inherent pragmatism of the human mind, the oppressed have often found it safer to believe rather than to think, to obey rather than dissent. Today, such a path is reinforced by a plutocratic political economy that allows corporations to dominate mass media, education, and the production of knowledge and memory. Human history, however, has not been without its visionaries, seers, and prescient intellectuals, poets, artists, thinkers, and philosopher rebels. Every major religion admonishes its, its adherents not to allow the merchant class, with its singular focus on aggregating profits at the expense of truth, compassion, and self-restraint, to amass too much power. Such instructions have emanated not from revelation, but from ethics learned via the daily experience of living in community with others committed to the common good. Unfortunately, it has not been the transactional incentives of commerce, but the cooperative bonds of community that dominate the most significant acts of life in the United States today. The dystopian scenarios portrayed in George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World look like understatements compared to today's plutocratic deployment of communications technologies, many of them developed by taxpayer-funded government programs and grants. The ultimate success of top-down censorship is self-censorship by the people. The same holds true for mass surveillance. From radio and television to the internet and smartphones and all the video platforms and apps in between, commercially controlled media have used seduction and addiction to lure users to increasingly stare into screens and share personal data and location, thus becoming complicit with authoritarianism and mass surveillance. In the process, the population has become fact-deprived and over-entertained with lowered expectation levels and reduced attention spans. These technology-driven changes have distracted people from their rights and powers as citizens. As authors Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff write, long before Trump's candidacy, ratings drove programming and news. In the process, celebrity, entertainment, scandal, crime, disaster, and spectacle clearly dominated over substantive reporting and public interest advocacy capable of questioning and countering abuses of corporate power and government authority. Trump, they noted, came right out of the omnipresent corporate commercialism. Deadly degradation of media is everywhere. Fueled by Madison Avenue's promotional perfidy, the junk food industry, bypassing parental authority, has lied its way directly into the stomachs of tens of millions of children, creating an obesity epidemic with its attendant diseases. Alternative facts, anyone? 45 years ago, venerated CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite called the three minutes or so devoted to a serious news story merely a headline service. If anything, the situation has worsened since Cronkite's time. Gone are the fairness doctrine, the right of reply, and any pretense that the Federal Communications Commission is regulating the broadcasters according to the 1934 Communication Act standard of the public interest, convenience, and necessity. The takeover of hundreds of newspapers, local television stations, and radio stations by corporate profiteers is still worsening. These corporations loot vulnerable media operations by cutting out reporters, investigative journalists, whistleblowers, educational content, and local coverage. Magazines are shrinking, going out of business, or just migrating to online-only versions. Social media cannot generate such content in addition to other shortcomings. Young people today are becoming increasingly illiterate. They spend more time staring at screens, but ultimately read less long-form content unless forced to do so for classwork. Fewer people are showing up for town meetings, marches, demonstrations, and rallies in spite of the ease and immediacy of communication enabled by the Internet. The so-called information age has become the disinformation age, with the corporate media's exclusion of the civic community being one of its most devastating triumphs. In the 1960s and 1970s, we could not have succeeded in advancing standards for public health and safety, labor, and environmental integrity without the help of mass media reporting on public campaigns and congressional hearings or without large audiences tuning into 
programs such as the Phil Donahue Show, which dedicated airtime to discussing our investigations, reports, and exposés. Now it is not just corporate media, but the Congress itself that is increasingly shutting out citizens' groups. United States of Distraction by Higdon and Huff. Welcome back, Tom Harvin here with you. On the line with us is uh, Jonathan Alter, the author, uh, FDR and Obama, the documentary filmmaker, MSNBC analyst, Daily Beast columnist, co-host of a program on Sirius XM, Alter Family Politics. Uh, JonathanAlter.com is his website, and it's also his Twitter handle. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks very much, Tom. The last time I think I remember seeing you in person was in the green room at MSNBC a few years ago. It looks like you've been really, really busy here. Tell us about Alter Family Politics, your show on, on Sirius XM. Well, uh, it's on Radio Andy, Sirius XM 102. Andy Cohen, you know, of Bravo and uh, Real Housewives and Watch What's Happening Live mm-hmm. fame has a, a channel. And Dan Rather has a show on that channel, and we do too. And basically, it's me, my wife, Emily Lazar, and our three kids, Charlotte Alter, who's a national correspondent for Time Magazine, Tommy Alter, who is an HBO sports producer, and and he also produces several other shows and podcasts. And so Charlotte is 30, Tommy Alter is 28, and Molly Alter, our baby, is 26, and she is in venture capital in New York. So the five of us basically talk about politics for an hour Thursdays at 10 a.m., and it's kind of like The Simpsons. You know, I'm Homer, Emily's Mark, <laughs> oh, no. uh, Charlotte is Lisa, uh-huh. Tommy is Bart, and Molly is Maggie. And most of what they do is make fun of Homer. But we do manage to cover politics and, you know, whatever else is in the news in what our listeners think is an entertaining fashion. Well, you are one of the more thoughtful, insightful, and in fact, I I recall our conversation in that green room, you actually gave me some some serious food for thought for the, the discussion that I was about to have. And political analysts that I, you know, that I've known, I've, I've been watching you for years and, and reading your stuff for years. And, and I'm wondering your take on, in the broadest sense, the current state of the race, and in a somewhat narrower sense, the danger that Donald Trump might represent to the United States and the world if he is willing to take a call from uh, uh, essentially a, a dictator, you know, Erdogan in Turkey, and betray uh, long-term allies of ours and throw Syria into turmoil, if he's willing to take talking points from the president of Russia that indict Ukraine, who is our ally, and repeat them over and over and over again. If back in 2012, when uh, uh, Barack Obama was up for re-election, He tweeted two or three times, and he said on television several times that he fully expected Obama to launch a war against Iran because that would be something that would be low cost. I think he thinks Iran is like Afghanistan, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world. I don't think he realizes it's one of the most fully developed countries, you know, certainly in the Middle East. And that he might, if he still believes that, I mean, he obviously believes a whole bunch of things that aren't true that that he might even be willing to start a war. There's the story about his, uh, his national security team brought him a whole tabletop scale model of North and South Korea and to show him how close Seoul was to the DMZ and how you know, North Korea doesn't even need a bomb. They could, take, they could kill 25 million people with artillery in an afternoon. And his response was, well, Seoul has to move. They just have to move that city, which is crazy. I mean, you know, so A, our general politics, B, any kind of danger that Donald Trump may present between now and the time he's removed from office, whether it's by impeachment or by election. And C, I'm curious your thoughts on the debate. So because of this delay, it's easier for me to just toss a whole bunch of stuff at you and let you just go riff on it. Go for it. Well, thank you, Tom. And I'm sorry about the delay. I'm home trying to a chapter that that I, that I have to uh, get in for a biography that I'm writing of Jimmy Carter that I've been working on for the last uh, few years. So let me try okay. to answer your question this way. Uh, you know, it's two parts. One is about Trump. The other is about the Democrats. 
Trump is, as many Democrats have been saying, a clear and present danger, not just to our democracy, but to peace in the world, as you indicate. And I I think you've brought up something that hasn't gotten enough attention. And this has worried me since he was a candidate for president. And that is because he confuses himself and the state, an insult to him you know, is an insult to the United States in his mind. And remember, he's a counterpuncher who believes in, quote, hitting back 10 times as hard. So when Debbie Dingell comes out for impeachment, he says her husband is in hell. You know, he always hits back 10 times as hard. So what really worries me is that there's some kind of incident in the Persian Gulf or in the South China Sea or somewhere in the world, and he overreacts in a bid to be the commander-in-chief and wartime leader. I think next year he's going to slip pretty far behind in the polls when the Democrats settle on nominees. He's already behind in a lot of polls. And he is desperate to get reelected to try to erase some of the stain of impeachment. And I think it will stop at nothing to get reelected. We know that he wants Russian interference, but I think he would also go to war to get reelected if he thought that was going to help. And so I'm very, very concerned about this part of it. I am very concerned about what else he could do to our democracy. He seems like he is almost doubling down by having Giuliani continue to, you know, look into his ridiculous conspiracy theories. And there is no more important task for uh, not just Democrats, but a lot of Republicans of goodwill, independents, than making sure that this man is not reelected. And so I, I just need to say to your you know, your audience, I have great respect for you and your show and for your audience, but I, I do know that there are some people in your audience who I had some very discouraging conversations with in 2016, in the fall of 2016. This was after Bernie Sanders had endorsed Hillary Clinton, but they still were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. They 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 took sort of the Susan Sarandon view, you know, That's things crazy. have to get worse before they can get better. And they, you know, either did not vote for Hillary or voted for Jill Stein or stayed home or just voted down ballot, whatever they did, it was extremely harmful in, a, in an election that was very close. So all of us who are, consider ourselves progressives have to be really, really strong in getting the losers to get behind the winner of the Democratic nomination. Now, it's possible yeah. the winner and we all had the vote blue Sanders, no who. right? And it could be, you know, it could be Bernie Sanders, and then our task is to get Biden's people, you know, behind Sanders. But if it goes the other way, this is just it's job one, and it's a hard mm-hmm. thing for progressives to do because. We are often inclined to form a circular firing squad. And by the way, I don't have any problem with the candidates being very critical of each other during the primaries. And I think it's fine for them to go after each other in these debates. That's what debates are for. I'm talking about after we settle on the nominee. Because we've had three examples, Tom, in our history where progressives have really, really fallen down in their small-D Democratic responsibilities. The first was when I was 11 years old, but I remember it really well because my parents were really upset about it. And that was when supporters of Gene McCarthy in 1968, my father was a big Gene McCarthy guy, many of them did not close ranks behind Hubert Humphrey who was running against Richard mm-hmm. Nixon and Humphrey lost a very, very close election. And if, if liberals had been more willing to vote for Humphrey, who was an old liberal, they just didn't like, they didn't think he was anti-war enough for them. And he, you know, and, and so they, they didn't vote for him and he lost by a hair to Nixon. And we got a lot of bad 
bad things that happened. And then the next time it happened was in 2000, you know, with Al Gore, and a lot of people voted for Ralph Nader. And yeah. then it happened in, in in 2016. So that cannot happen again. I'm sorry to dwell on this topic. I absolutely agree. So important. No, it's I, Jonathan, I absolutely agree. And I, I after uh, Bernie lost the primary, I was campaigning like crazy on this show for Hillary Clinton. And I will, I will for whoever vote and whoever wins You're this listening time. To Jonathan, Tom hang on just a second, Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's Jonathan Alter, the author. He's got a new show on Sirius XM, Alter Family Politics. JonathanAlter.com is the website. Jonathan, thanks for dropping by. Thanks a lot, Tom. We used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older. But all that has changed now thanks to this magic in a bottle, Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turned back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to problem areas and within 10 minutes, voila, a new you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox involved. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 knowing Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger looking skin in minutes. And the best part is, it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code Hartman. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code Hartman. So there's a new paper out from uh, Breakthrough, the National Center for Climate Restoration in Australia. This is one of these papers that, you know, companies buy these things, governments buy them from these think tanks. This is done by a bunch of military experts. One of these guys actually was also the chairman of the Australian Coal Association and chief executive of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. The bottom line, and I'll just get to it real quick. Uh, even for two degrees Celsius warming, more than a billion people may need to be relocated. And in high-end scenarios, the scale of destruction is beyond our capacity to model with a high likelihood of human civilization coming to an end. They do offer a solution. It's a radical Marshall-style program. You can check out the entire thing on our special video over at TomHartman.com. Uh, you can check it out get the whole thing. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about a lot of stuff here, but Damon in Las Vegas. Damon, what's on your mind? Yeah, so um, I uh, was uh, watching right after the election. Let me get this over. I was right after the election. I was watching CNN. I mean, the impeachment, excuse me. And some constitutional lawyer said, don't send the articles ever because what's the point? And then Sonny Hostin mm. on uh, the view echoed some college professor from Harvard saying the same thing. And then I heard you earlier, so I Googled what I could find, and I actually read it. There's no time limit. None. It's, it's, it's no, there isn't. No. And you there are isn't. as professional. Yeah, uh, you can do your due diligence. So this is for everybody listening. Stop it. Don't send those articles out. Yeah, they, it's not, it's pointless. they, they could. Yeah, and, and, and this is where... This is where I was wrong a couple of days ago, where I said, I, you know, I think that they have to send them. They don't. And you're absolutely right, Damon. There is nothing in the Constitution that says that the articles have to be sent to the Senate or have to be sent to the Senate at any particular time. And uh, although apparently there, he's not actually technically legally impeached until they have been sent to the Senate. But, okay. you know, Nancy Pelosi can hold on to those things into next year if she wants. Like I've been saying, I mean, like I've been reading on the internet, the day she says it should be 11 for 2020, period. <laughs> there you go. Damon, it may well be. I mean, let's, let's wait and see. I, the one thing I trust is that Nancy Pelosi is going to do the thing that is both right for the country and right politically. Because right now, right politically means right for the country because these guys are, these guys are plain old flat out screaming crim criminals. Damon, thanks for the call. Lauren in uh, Seattle. Hey, Lauren, what's up? 
Hi, Tom. Um, I just want to share a comment and a frustration about the questions, the moderators, how they missed a question on poverty and homelessness in this country. We've got mm-hmm. 80 million people living in poverty. And the fact that the mainstream media wants everyone to think that people are thriving in this economy. And people, there are many people who are di- dying in this economy. And um, I really feel like they, they missed um, a very good opportunity to talk about poverty and homelessness in this country. And um, I just want to say, you know, shame on the moderators for not commenting on that. I mean, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for us to talk about the the Trump economy. And, you know, people are dying. They're not thriving. And I, I just... Anyway, that's all I wanted to say. I just it was, it was a, a bad move on the moderator's part. Yeah, yeah. Well, you said it well, Lauren. But there was there were a number of moments when I know Bernie got into this, uh, Elizabeth Warren got into this. I'm pretty sure Pete Buttigieg got into it, and Andrew Yang might have mentioned it in passing. And that's just from my memory. Was that the GDP, GDP growth, and stock market increases are not measures of the economy that have meaning to anybody other than the top basically 10% of Americans. And we need to stop using these as metrics to determine what is a good economy. And the fact of the matter is we've added a lot of jobs and unemployment's really low, but many of those jobs are second and third jobs for people. Many of those jobs right. are people making uh, less than $10.80 $10. an hour, I think was the average, uh, you know, $18,000 a year was the average uh, new job or a- the average of all jobs right now in the United States for 40% of Americans. So it is a grim economy. It's, uh, you know, unless you happen to be uh, owning stock or, or, you know, have such a high salary that you've noticed that your taxes have gone down. So, Lauren, excellent point. Thank you very much for calling and making it. Laura in Lake Stevens, Washington. Hey, Laura, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you doing? I hope you're doing good. I just wanted to say that that, gosh darn, that Nancy Pelosi, I think she was, um, I think she was ahead of the game. I think obstructing Congress is what um, Mitch McConnell and all of them are doing right now with this decision that they've come up with. So there's no doubt about it that um, obstructing Congress now, right? Yeah, it certainly seems that way. And, and thus obstructing justice, I mean, you know, which are both crimes. But, right. Yeah. So, I mean, they, she said, she said, well, they're all in cahoots, you know, that's what she, I noticed her saying that. It's like, they are, they're all in cahoots. Yeah. And now with him coming up with this decision to not do anything about it is what she said that they, you know, Trump was doing. So he's siding with Trump and now we have to just get in there and, and, and uh, obstruct Congress. Vote the bombs out. Yeah. yeah. We need to vote the bombs out. Thank you, Laura. Well said. Maurice in uh, Chapel Hill. Maurice, we only have a little more than a half a minute. You got a quick point you want to make? I want to pick your brains about Space Force. You know, just mm-hmm. like you hear, like, these crazy things that keep on coming up, and, and you wonder if it's just, like, a, a symptom of his, uh, you know, egomaniacal narcissism, or, or does it plug into some kind of, you know, fait accompli, coup d'etat thing, uh, you know, connected with, you know, taking over the telecommunication satellites or whatever? Yeah. My guess is that the Space Force was just Trump wanted to have something big that he could put on his resume and and have an impact on the military because he loves the military, or at least he thinks he loves the military. He, uh, you know, he had bone spurs when the military needed him. I doubt it's a malignant force. I'm guessing it's a little more benign, like, you know, kind of a reinvention of NASA. But time will tell. Reading today from Dr. Bryant Welch's book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. This is from chapter one. Do you think there might be something just a little off in America, psychologically speaking? Of course, there's something wrong. We all know it. And in many quarters, our national behavior hovers on the brink of a very different, even deranged society that many fear is leading to fascism. Many of us play a game of ain't it awful about Donald Trump, and we talk in the latest psychological jargon about how odd and dangerous he is. But that's not really the issue in America, is it? Millions of Americans voted for Donald Trump, and the rest of us were unable to defeat him, the seemingly most incompetent person ever to run for president, and certainly the most bizarre. The real issue in America is what's wrong with our own minds. Any angry person in America, be they terrorist, super patriot, 
or just someone who'd like to end their unhappy life with a glorious bang is allowed to commit their own grand form of suicide with semi-automatic weapons that can literally kill another human being every second. Our taxed and now terribly compromised form of mental reasoning has led us to this paralysis in our problem-solving ability. We understandably blame the NRA, but how do we explain their minds? And how do we explain our inability to defeat their minority effort? When we look in the faces of the grieving parents of Sandy Hook or Stoneman Douglas victims, Remarkably today, when our most precious surviving youth stand up bravely in protest, they are referred to as Nazis. We can understand these American minds and we can change them, but only if we will put the American mind itself front and center in our awareness and study of it. It's not just our environment that is deteriorating from the stresses we put on it. It is also our minds. In reissuing this supplemented version of State of Confusion, I'll show why the inherently vulnerable, increasingly traumatized, and badly manipulated American mind has reached a point that now threatens America's democracy, maybe even our survival. Focusing on Donald Trump's obvious impairments is a dangerous distraction that keeps us from attending to this real problem. Fortunately, I believe we do have the knowledge and resources to combat the true threat and reclaim the American mind with its glorious commitment to the freedom of the human spirit. But we must confront the reality of our situation now. We don't have another 10 years. I am a clinical psychologist and attorney and have had an unusual opportunity to understand current American political behavior, not only from work with patients, but also in my time spent in Washington, D.C. as a national spokesperson for psychology and mental health. My life passion has been the human mind as it shapes how we feel in the interior of our own personal private space, how it creates the way we experience our most intimate relationships, and how it influences the way we conduct our public affairs. State of Confusion by Bryant Welch. Tom Harvin here with you and Ari in Chicago. Hey, Ari, what's up? I did what you said. I got out and got active, and you've inspired me. So I wanted to thank you for that. I hosted a watch party for Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang is addressing homelessness and poverty and human beings. He's offering universal basic income, putting humanity first. And uh, Martin Luther King advocated for it. Don't let anyone say he's a long shot because we are the power, like you said. Now Donnie Glover, Childish Gambino, who was just hired as his creative campaign director, starting from the bottom up. And uh, because in an impoverished society, we're seeing what's happening and we can't function without some help. And it's not a handout, it's a hand up. You know, it's um, something to give us hope. I get it. It's nice to hear from an Andrew Yang supporter. I think that's absolutely spectacular. And John, come on over here a little closer to me. Here's your microphone. Why, thank you, Tom. And, okay, cool. <laughs> so, John Fiegel saying. Tom Hartman. <laughs> welcome. Ah, oh, thank welcome, you. Welcome to our uh, humble little uh, office uh, here. <laughs> welcome to our subway system Ron. and crumbling infrastructure. Thank I, you. Uh, and Ron Hartenbaum, Bill. Well, first of all, you saw the debate. I saw the debate. I thought it was the uh, most interesting one yet, that it focused on policy more than any I'd seen. and. Uh-huh. You know, Tom, for a long time I was thinking, God, is this election going to be like 2004, where you have this unpopular incumbent who we know broke the law, it was WMDs then, and where you have this talented, diverse field of Democrats who just keep knocking each other off until they're so weak that the incumbent who never won the popular vote wins. I've been so terrified of 04, but now the Democratic field is reminding me of the GOP in 12. Seemingly everyone is going to be at the top of the heap for a week or so. You know, it's Pete Buttigieg's party now, and I was thinking, God, I bet Amy Klobuchar is in the front by mid-January. They all had a good night. I didn't think anyone was damaged. I thought it's still, you're either with Senator Sanders or Warren, or you're looking for a moderate alternative to Biden idol. Yeah. 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 And that seems to be and, the reality show. And for that matter, Joe Biden, I finally figured out, I mean, I, and I've said this on the air, particularly in the first two debates, I thought what he was showing was age, you know, that he was, yeah. he was missing words. He'd say, I got two things to say about that, and then he'd forget the second mm-hmm. one. And that concerned me. But the major part was he would be in a thought, and then he would just kind of 
veer off a little bit. And, I agree. And I figured out at least a good chunk of that isn't that the guy's getting old and senile. It's that he's still struggling with stuttering. Yeah. He would he would just like have a hard time saying a word, and rather than bang 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 on that word, he would just digress off to some other word or in mm -hmm. some other direction. And because just a few weeks ago, I'd read this long article about how he struggled with stuttering all his life, and yeah, it, I had no idea. That article and, was a real game changer for his campaign, I think, because he may have wanted to avoid that subject, but since then, it has gotten the subject off his age and onto this, and it's humanized him in a brand new way that most of us who've grown up knowing the guy had never known before. Yeah, and to the point that Sarah. Sanders was ridiculing him. And, mm -hmm. uh, she, what a shock. Uh, we're talking with John Fugelsang. He's the actor, comedian, host of SiriusXM Progress. His show is on from 9 to midnight on SiriusXM. He was with me yesterday. We were doing this uh, little two-hour holiday special for SiriusXM, or end-of-the-year special, I guess. Yeah, it's great it was, fun. Uh, yeah, it was. Every, every host except Stephanie Miller was there. Basically, a, you know, a major progressive lineup. And he's also a filmmaker. His latest film is Dream On, A Road Trip in Search of the American Dream. JohnFugelsang.com, the website, Thank and of course the Twitter handle as well. And by um, the way, I just moved to SiriusXM Progress, and I only did it because I wanted to try to be Tom's secret Santa at the holiday party. So <laughs> it's great to be on the channel. <laughs> this is the problem. Mm. <laughs> Interviewing a comedian. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Part. I just can't keep up. <laughs> you and Stephanie, right? I get in the studio with Stephanie. I'm like, oh, well, God. Yeah. She thinks so fast. You guys are so good at associative connections. I really think that there's a different kind of wiring. I mean, my thinking processes tend to be very linear. You know, I take a chunk of data and then I just try to drill down into it. That's your brilliance. My, sure. my best friend was a, a stand-up comedian. He lives here in New York, Jerry Schneiderman, mm. and known him for since the early 70s. He does the same thing. You know, you're going down some road mental-wise and boom, he takes a 90 degree and the response is to laugh. I mean, you know, that's... A, well, my, my dad was a history teacher, and I grew up really invested in learning about government and history. And as you know, my parents were both ex-Catholic clergy. My mom was a nun who was a nurse in Africa, my dad a Franciscan brother. So I grew up with that activist social justice Christianity, which I still believe in. But I realized something very powerful that Billy Wilder said, if you're going to tell people the truth, make it funny or they will kill you. <laughs> and so that sort of thing of like having the references come in. Uh, you know, if I just went on stage and tried to talk about what I care about, it would be propaganda and boring. But the jokes are the, the lubrication, if you will, that helps move the point along and often balances it out. Yeah. I mean, you reach a lot more of our conservative brothers and sisters if you can make them laugh because they'll trust you. That's why people, I think, trust comics more than they trust a lot of politicians or a lot of uh, journalists. Because if there's an element of truth, you'll laugh and you'll recognize that. Yeah. I took a uh, screenwriting course from Robert McKee. In oh, yeah, fact, of course. I took it three times. Yeah. <laughs> Louise took it twice, and our youngest daughter took it once. Brilliant you know, man. He is. He's just mind-boggling. And he made a comment kind of almost as an aside, because we were talking about mostly it was about mystery and suspense, and, and I was there as a novelist. And he said, in comedy, what you do is you establish an expectation, and then you violate it in a way that makes perfect sense. You know, uh, Red <laughs> yes. Skelton, you know, I just, yeah. I just flew in from Pittsburgh and boy, are my arms tired, right? Yeah. And that's the moment. And then the reaction to that is one of both surprise and relief, mm -hmm. you know, and realization all kind of rolled together, which produces laughter. At that moment when he said that, I thought, oh, my God, there's a science to comedy. Sure. Is that something that you knew or have you always had that ability throughout your life and it just kind of intuitively... I think it's something I'm always trying to learn more. And many times in political comedy, it's taking that truth and then finding the trope that turns it on its head. Like when Trump came back from meeting the Saudi royal family, uh, my joke was I just flew in from Saudi Arabia and boy, are my arm sales tired. You know, ah. I mean, it's just a... <laughs> Well, it's a double-double on time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's just a matter of, you know, like, like finding where it is. I mean, Tom Petty once said, God's already written all the great songs. You just have to find them. And it's sort of the same with, uh, with a joke. And I think Twitter has made a lot of people even better comedians because it's all about the economy. Yeah. It's all about paring down a paragraph to just a thought and a notion. Yeah. You're really listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be right back with John Fugel saying, stick around. Listen. 
people talk about uh, uh, Jewish guilt, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's great. It's often confused with Catholic guilt. Um, the Catholics took guilt and made it shame. And it's actually kind of important to understand some folks. Like, if you feel bad about something you did, that's guilt, and that can be good. If you feel bad about who you are as a person, that's shame. And if you feel shame because you believe God wishes you had more guilt, that's Catholic. And that's sort of how I was raised. There's actually a, a, a logic to that. I mean, yeah. you know, one of the, one of the uh, I, I call myself a Christian. Um, I, I, <laughs> I went through seminary. I was the pastor of a church in Detroit for two years. Yes, you were. I've been there. I've done that. But I also, the biggest problem that I have with Christianity, and Judaism for that matter, and Islam, is the doctrine of born of woman, therefore sin. Therefore you know, sin. The original, the doctrine Complete of original rubbish, yeah. sin. And, and they'll tell you you're born of sin, but then they'll talk about innocent life in the womb. Uh, make up your mind, pals. Oh, that's a good point. I yeah. hadn't even thought of. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, it's not until, maybe it's not until you come out through the birth canal. <laughs> and the Bible says. Because that's where fun yeah. happens. And the, and the Bible says know. life doesn't begin till first breath. So, yes. you know, I think. Yeah. Uh, that's the word inspiration. Yeah. yeah, I kind of go for the morality and the teachings of Jesus. Um, I, you know, I love the magic tricks. I love all the great Jew magicians going back to Houdini. Uh, mm-hmm. Fantastic. But really, for me, it's, it's the lessons of Jesus, the incredibly, insanely liberal teachings, which is what got him killed, as you well yeah. know. Yeah. I don't say that I'm Christian anymore. I say I aspire to be Christian. I say the same thing about being liberal. I aspire to be liberal. It's like being woke. I don't think you ever get there. It is a destination. Yeah, that word has been turned into a, it's been weaponized. I'm not sure how long it's going to last. I agree. I agree because and, I'm, or what's going to come next. It's like well, every generation. I mean, you know, when I was a kid in the 60s, it was like we're hip, you know. Yeah. And or we're, or it's cool. I mean, there, there were a couple of words that. But woke is not so much about style. It is about morality and awareness of justice. No, and, this and this was then too. Oh yeah, well, I mean, hip, it was yeah, a sense right. of you know the, he's square, I'm hip. Oh, I gotcha. And in other words, this guy doesn't know what's actually going on. He doesn't understand why we shouldn't have the war. He doesn't understand why you know mm-hmm. we should treat de- people decently. Uh, you know, fill in the blanks. I mean, you know, it was just that generation's version of it. What I love is that irony is the one religion that'll never let you down. And, um, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, I knew that the Eisenhower Republicans were the squares and the hippies were the hip ones. Now it's the hippies who are fighting for Eisenhower policies. I mean, mm-hmm. if I have any political affiliation, I say I'm an Eisenhower Republican mm-hmm. because everything that uh, Eisenhower, the square, fought for is what the far left people are fighting for now. Progressive taxation, massive infrastructure spending, socialist programs like the GI Bill, both political parties strongly supporting labor unions. Expanding social support. The hipsters are now fighting for what I did. I, I often play on my show clips from his farewell address. What an address. The, and the parts that go way beyond the military complex just completely ignored by history we're hitting a break right now so we'll be right back stick around our video for the day it's over available over at tomhartman.com is talking about the donald trump presidency has been fundamentally destructive not just to the United States, not just to our political norms, not just to our body politic, not just to the institutions of the presidency and our governance in general. His disrespect of judges, his disrespect of Congress is pushing the boundaries of what you know an Article II office can do. But it's also destructive around the world because of the things that he's not doing, that aren't getting attended to. We've got part, major parts of the world that are spiraling into chaos that could, any, several of them could trigger World War III. And instead, he's sitting there live tweeting Fox News, literally, every morning and every evening. Check it out. It's available over at TomHartman.com. And well, welcome back. John Fugelsang is with us. He is the uh, actor, comedian, and for, it's, I just realized, it's a, or just learned, it's only a month old. Your brand new show on SiriusXM. Well, we've been on Sirius for about f- almost five years, but we just moved to the Progress Channel last month. Right, nine to midnight. Nine to midnight. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. There you go. You say we? We? Uh, you said we just moved. Is oh, that yes, the royal we, uh, we? Yes, me and my show just oh, okay. moved. Cool. And, uh, and my right. guests, because we, yeah. we, we kept a lot of our regular guests and journalists. Yeah. That's great. And you can find it on SiriusXM Progress 127, 9 to midnight Eastern, 6 to 9. We position the show as both a, a live three-hour broadcast at night or a three-hour podcast the next day. Yeah. So the, the fate and future, I mean, you know, we, we've kind of discussed the fate and future of the world and politics and all that kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm wondering, though, what, can you handicap the Democratic race? 
If you had asked me a year ago what I thought was the strongest ticket, I would have said Biden-Harris in terms of the strongest ticket to beat Trump. Mm -hmm. And it might still be. But it's strange. There's really two different races. People either want someone who will completely reform our entire system and unrig our economic system, or they want someone who will beat up Donald Trump on a debate stage and just get him out. And we'll see what happens next. You either we can't get both. Well, it's either a transplant or a tourniquet. You can get both. And I certainly think that uh, Senator Sanders could do it. I think this whole thing might come down to Biden versus Sanders. Uh, Calif- I, think, I think Warren has at least a good, as good a chance as Bernie does. I think Warren does as well. And, and there's, there's a whole bunch of people in, who are still so pissed off at Bernie for having had the audacity to challenge Hillary. And I, I have to deal with um, it every day. The Bernie-Hillary civil war is still raging, and, and it is and, and if Trump's Warren greatest is the hope. nominee, that all goes away, which is not to say that I don't want Bernie, because I love Bernie. I love Bernie. Bernie was on my show for 11 years. I listen to Bernie on your show every week, and Bernie's done my show many times. I've done events with him. I love him personally, but I, I say to Bernie fans, and they get mad at me, when I ask people why they don't like Bernie Sanders, because I can't understand why you wouldn't, it's almost always the same thing, his male fans' online behavior. I keep hearing it time and time again. And here's the deal with Senator Sanders. He stood on that stage at the DNC and said Hillary Clinton must become the next president of the United States. He endorsed her. So anytime, He didn't just endorse her. He did. Outside of Tim Kaine, there was no other politician in America who gave more speeches exactly. in more locations before more people on behalf of Hillary Clinton for president yeah. than Bernie Sanders. He was not a spoiler. If he'd run third party, that's a spoiler. Right. I was on MSNBC on Joy Reid's show when they were trying to you know, await who Hillary's VP pick would be, and they asked me my thoughts, and I said, well, you'll think I'm crazy, but Bernie Sanders. And they all looked at me like I had nine heads, but I thought, look, JFK and LBJ didn't like each other, but right. the fact is Sanders would bring that enthusiasm. I don't want to relitigate the whole thing, but I thought it would have been a much more powerful ticket with broader appeal. Well, this is why I love Warren, too. But like, look, Tom, if it's Marianne Williamson, Bill de Blasio ticket, I'm there. Like, whoever it is. Yeah. I'll take... Uh, oh, Marianne's a friend of mine. Marianne's a friend <laughs> of mine. I would love to see I'd love to see Marianne do well. I'll take um, anyone. But I'd, I'd rather have a haircut than a beheading. I'm not yeah. into a purity test. Yeah, yeah. But the bottom line is I, I think that the Republicans have been running base strategies since 1980. Oh, yeah. That's what they figured out in 1980 is we're going to lose elections. from Actually, you could say since 64. Arguably, except Nixon didn't really run. Well, Nixon sort of ran a base strategy in '68, but and but, the drug war and the Southern strategy but, were. But you know, Barry, Barry Goldwater did he warned it. us, and and it was so idealistic. And you have to understand the 1960s, early 60s, late 50s. I mean, I was 13 years old, and I went door to door with my dad in 1964 for Barry Goldwater. Wow. At the same time that Hillary Clinton, who was must have been five years older than me, was going door to door for Barry Goldwater. Yeah. I mean, they, a bunch of us who grew up to be Democratic idealists started with Barry Goldwater. But who did Barry Goldwater and, warn us about? The preachers, the right wing preachers, and right. the right wing oil guys. That's right. And that unholy alliance that kind of came together post Roe v. Wade. I mean, the greatest achievement, the reason the Republican Party is this powerful, is all about Christianity. And they have got, they've convinced followers of Jesus to vote against everything Jesus ever talked about by talking about abortion which Jesus never talked about. Correct. We have people who believe the talking snake is literal fact, but love your enemies is Jesus being all metaphorical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But my point in all this is that Republicans said, we're going to run base strategies on a set of core principles, which they kind of threw away with Reagan, but nonetheless, we're going we're to run base strategies, and they win with that. And Democrats stopped, which was his stump speech in 92. Mm-hmm. It was FDR's second new deal. Yeah. He was talking about jobs for everybody, housing for everybody, health care for everybody. I mean, it was, and of course, you know, famously, the three guys sat him down, uh, you know, a um, guy who uh, became the head of the Fed. Uh, Greenspan. You know, yeah, Greenspan and all these guys. They sat him down and said, son, you're not going to govern this way. And Democrats have not been running base campaigns since then. Is that because you, the GOP has a base, but Democrats have several Smaller bases? No, I think it's because the Democratic Party, see, in 92, Reagan had decimated the unions at that point, which was the major source of income for the Democratic Party. So Clinton and Al Fromm reached out to banks, insurance companies, the, the, quote, clean industries, airlines, we'll take your money. That's right. And the Democratic Party became a corporate party in 92, and it stayed that way up until now. I struggle with this because that's that's the triangulation we speak of. Exactly right. And, And that is something that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are not doing. Exactly. They're saying, we're going to run a base strategy. And I believe that if either one of those two people are the nominees, they will wipe the floor with the Republicans. Because we haven't seen a base strategy in this country 
since 64. Well, I, I completely agree. I think the worst nightmare of, of Donald Trump and the oligarchs is conservative uh, men and women actually hearing Bernie and Elizabeth Warren speak at length. There you go. However, the real collusion is Donald Trump and the people who own the media because they like their ratings, their circulation, and their text. We've got a wrap. Um, John Fugel saying, thanks, check sir. him out on SiriusXM, 9 midnight Eastern time. And thanks so much for being with us. Happy impeachment. Yeah, there you go. Happy impeachment. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag your You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.